You're listening to Dr. Ward Bond's Life-Changing Wellness, the fastest-growing natural health, nutrition, and inspiration podcast in the nation. Uplifting stories, powerful messages, and triumph over adversity, the experience of entertainment and encouragement is about to begin. And now your host, Dr. Ward Bond. Amanda McCracken is a sexual empowerment and intimacy advocate on a mission to help society evaluate the intersection of emotional vulnerability, mental health, and sexual ethics. A freelance journalist, she is driven to explore what her 41 years of virginity taught her about longing. She is currently writing her book, When Longing Becomes Your Lover, which is a personal, cultural, and scientific investigation of a young woman with an unhealthy addiction to longing for unavailable men. While her bylines have appeared in magazines such as Vogue, The New York Times, Elle, Self, and many others, So ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome sexual empowerment and intimacy advocate, Amanda McCracken. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Well, you know, when I first read the story, I, the first thing that popped into my mind was a 41 year old female virgin sounds like the sequel to Steve Carell's 40 year old virgin movie. And did your pre-virgin days resemble that film? Uh, definitely not. Uh, unfortunately, yeah, I feel like that film is um, one reason I've been writing a lot about this because I feel like it has kind of portrayed um, late in life virgins as just being weird and uncomfortable with their body and afraid to date. And that definitely wasn't me. So unlike Steve Carell I uh, or his character, I can't remember what that guy's name was in there, but um, I did date... Uh, I dated like over a hundred guys. I mean, I was, you know, that maybe averages only three or four a year. So, you know, after you've been uh, um, single for 41 years, almost, I had a couple um, long-term relationships in there, but so definitely not the Steve Carell character. Well, you know, your story is very, very interesting. And even with, let's, let's look at a little bit of the, scientific investigation did you compare uh men versus women when it comes to late in life virginity um not i mean and some of the research i did i came across you know some statistics on it but nothing that i can recall offhand that was significant um not that like there are more females or men that we're waiting. So, well, why didn't you give up hope, you know, that you would find a mutually loving relationship and just have sex with someone you felt a physical connection with? Cause that seems to be the, the common denominator nowadays. Yeah, I, I just had, I mean, I'm pretty goal oriented and uh, as an athlete, like an, as endurance athlete, um, I mean, maybe you can relate as being a cyclist. I, I, I think you're a cyclist that yeah. you kind of get, you know, that was my, my goal was to wait until I was in a mutually loving and committed relationship to have sex. And, um, I really just believed in my gut that, um, he was out there and that, um, it was worth waiting for. So, well, were you a were, were you a teenage female athlete? I was, yeah. Ever, I mean, I um, you know was on a swim team when I was uh, 
in elementary school on all the way on up through high school and a, and a um, long distance runner still am. Well, the reason I'm asking is because um, for a lot of people who do not know, especially with female athletes from teenagers to those going in, into college, those that are really into athletics and are, let's say, training on a daily basis and competing, I understand that their hormone levels can be different. The menstrual cycles can be delayed for some. Mm. And mm -hmm. on the scientific side of things, did that pull away from any type of um, sexual desire in any cases? Well, that's a great question. But in my case, no, I mean, the, the endurance sports didn't delay my period. And uh, it's certainly, I think I was a little bit of a late, late in life bloomer in terms of like sex drive, but in my mid twenties, I would say, and definitely, you know, it, it definitely ramped up in my thirties. So, um, but I don't feel like that, you know, I was like dampening my, you know, um, my sex drive with the, with the sports. So well, I don't think that really you... played a role. Well, how are you able to, let's say, control the sex drive uh, if you were dating someone and you were actually wanting to wait? You mean like, how did I keep myself from having sex with somebody that I was very, very yeah. attracted to? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was hard, but I mean, you know, you ha we have brains, we have, we have self-control, we have the ability to make choices. And so, um, I think that that played a role instead of just like letting animal instincts, I suppose, take over. Um, so I just, I, I do think though, that the endurance sports, um, did have an impact on my discipline and, um, sense of, uh, uh, being goal oriented and some self-control if that makes sense pacing yeah. myself so to speak so well how did the uh how did all the men that you dated you know were some of them understanding or were some of them frustrated a little bit of both i would say for the most part i think it surprises a lot of people that men didn't pressure me um um there were a surprising number that really didn't really want to talk about it either. So I, I did bring up, um, you know, if I was going on a date and, um, sometimes I would bring it up on a date. Sometimes I would bring it up a couple dates later, uh, if things were, um, getting kind of hot and heavy just to kind of put up a, a stop sign, so to speak of like, a you know, uh, yield ahead, so to think, so to speak. Um, but, you know, I think uh, if it might have deterred some guys, but some of them were okay with just kind of hanging in there to see where, where things went. And um, there were, uh, it's complicated, but there was one guy in my 20s that I was in a long-term relationship with who I uh, did tell him, um, I will have, uh, you know, I want to have sex with you. And it took a lot of guts, a lot of my, took me a long time to get to that point. And he was um, in the military and he was getting ready to be deployed. And he said, uh, no, 
And uh, I think probably because he didn't know what our future looked like. Um, but I give him a lot of credit for in the heat of the moment to be like, no, I, I don't think this is probably the best best decision to make right now. And it did take, I think I kind of reeled in my, my, um, my heart at that point. It took me a while to, um, to uh, get back into a long-term relationship, so. Well, I think it showed on his point, on his side, he showed a great level of respect for you. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that actually lacks in today's society. And I really applaud you, Amanda, because I think women today, and I don't, and I hopefully this isn't taken uh, incorrectly, <clears throat> but you know, especially with the media and the way sex is portrayed on television and in film and in social media, mm -hmm. I think women need to be the one that says no. And, and, and for some women, really, I think when they say no, there's a, is a higher level of value for them and, and not just to fall in to whatever the guy may be wanting or pressuring or thinking that sex for any reason uh, is normal. But I think for a lot of women, I think it raises their level of value by saying no. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's necessarily should fall on the woman, but I definitely feel like there needs to be more of a conversation around it instead of like, just like we were talking about earlier in the yeah. heat of the moment, just like going for it. I suppose there's plenty of cases where that's great and it works out for both individuals, but I feel like, um, you know, getting into a, a relationship with somebody where you can be intimate and, and talk about your needs and fears is, uh, is really important. And for, I can speak for myself from a female standpoint, I think it's important to um, value yourself and your choice uh, and not just assume that you owe some guy because he took you out for a lobster dinner uh, sex. Yeah, exactly. And I, <clears throat> I completely agree. I mean, there's no way I would ever want to be in uh, the dating scene today. To me, that just is just, seems terrifying but uh how has sex positive feminism forced women into engaging in emotionally disconnected intimacy yeah i think that the you know the the you know sex revolution or feminist revolution you know in the in the 60s and 70s did women a favor by making them, you know, allowing them to feel um, free to do what they want with their bodies. Um, but, uh, and, you know, to have sex and with with whom and when they want and so forth. But um, I feel like there's been in the past couple decades, there's been more of a push for like, uh, any, you know, anything is better than nothing. And kind of the more the better. Um, so it's almost like i feel like women in today's society can't win you're either like a prude or you're a slut so to uh yeah so i feel like there's more of a push now for um it's trendy to have you know multiple partners um multiple partners of different uh genders and uh kink you know is is trendy and and 
So there's been a lot of talk about how that actually has been corrosive to intimacy and relationships, like to strip the intimacy from the relationship has made it uh, perhaps easier to engage in these activities. But eventually, I think it catches up to individuals um, who almost kind of become conditioned not to be vulnerable and talk about their needs. Well, would you agree that, uh, and let's just use teenage girls and college age girls as an example. They don't have the level of maturity in, in many cases to make very important decisions. Having sex is an important decision. And if the situation is, is negative or there's something wrong there, just um, one sexual encounter can, can mentally harm their uh, mental health uh, for the rest of their life. So for you, I mean, do you regret waiting and do you encourage, let's say, teenage girls, college age girls to maybe just step back and wait and really think about the decision they want to make in the areas of sexual intimacy? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I you know, I have a daughter um, and uh, so I've been, th I thought about this even before I ever met Dave, my husband, and ever before I knew if I could ever even conceive, like, what would I tell my daughter in this situation? And what will I tell her? And specifically for me, I don't regret waiting. Um, it was more of my patterns of um, chasing unavailable men, um, men who um, couldn't or didn't love me, um, were emotionally unavailable or living in another country, you know, it was, it was almost more appealing to chase after these um, men that I saw as potentials than actually seeking out men who were there and they were like, oh, I really like you. And, and that, and had, you know, like good attachment styles um, and come from good families, you know, I say good families that I know that sounds uh, <laughs> that could be taken different ways, but um you know, had good relationships with their parents. I think that's important. And I think that says something that they still care for their family and they're not, you know, estranged. Um, so, so that maybe that answers your question about like, did I uh, regret waiting? Um, so no, but I do regret not paying attention to my patterns a little bit sooner. Um, maybe not. I, I wish I'd probably gotten into therapy a little bit sooner. Um, but then I wouldn't have had some of the adventures I had, I suppose. So, you know, Perhaps there's the argument for, you know, destiny or fate, and I wouldn't have ended up with the the man that I'm with now, who I, I think I should be with, um, if I hadn't made some of the mistakes I made. Well, and I'll tell my daughter that. So, well, what but with regards to your question about like teenagers now, yes. I think the I think the important message is to real to to really in, um, instill a sense of self worth. And that they value their bodies, um, and they 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 value their choices, um, and that starts at like I think with parenting. So at least right now, I can start instilling that sense of self worth in my daughter um, even at a young age. Before you know, fifteen, ten years down the road, or twelve years down the road, when I start talking about sexual choices with her. Yeah, and I think with uh, teenage girls especially, um, they need to understand 
definitely self-worth. That's number one. But also the power to say no on the other side with teenage boys, college-age boys. If a girl says no, you agree to the no. And if you don't want to see her anymore, break it off and go on to something else. You know, don't be pushing what you physically want on somebody that keeps saying no because you're going to cause that other person more harm uh, than good, especially in the long term. Uh, mm-hmm. For you, where what actually started the longing for unavailable men? Where did that start? Oh, that's, I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, to be honest, even when I was in like high school, I had this obsession with um, the TV show, Lois and Clark Adventures of Superman with Dean Kane, Terry Hatcher. And um, just this kind of idealizing of uh, a man that I would pursue or that was out there. And it was a, it was kind of a, I think it became a safe way or a way of feeling safe. Um, Because then if you're always idealing somebody that you're not, you know, you're never going to find Superman. But um, if you're always idealizing that, that, you know, image, then you're not going to get hurt either because you're never going to find him. You're never going to get in that relationship. So I feel like I started those patterns even back in high school. Um, And I feel like culture just kind of continued to feed that, um, that, that feedback loop. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And, you know, we, you know, people's mindsets. And it's amazing that, uh, and, I, and I love the fact that, you know, you look at sexual ethics, you're doing this research. And at the same time, you're looking at mental health because there's a strong correlation uh, between the two. And, you know, I've talked to uh, especially women uh, that have gone through things like sexual abuse and the lifelong um struggles that they go through just because of if it was one encounter or if it was multiple encounters that were that were traumatizing it's hard to break free from that and so there's a strong mental uh, health aspect to that so i'm glad that you are tackling uh those type of areas but i want to ask you something because when it was when i was approached to uh to interview you uh what, how do you handle the identity of being a former 41-year-old virgin and now talking about sexual empowerment? Um, do you embrace <clears throat> that identity? Yeah. Um, so I would say that the it took me a while to, I, I actually say, like, break up with virginity because for so long that was who I was. I wrote about it. I spoke with other women who were kind of trying to navigate that world out there where um, being, you know, even a 25-year-old virgin was was weird in society. So um, I, like I said earlier, I think it helped, it, it, it was important for me to work on breaking those patterns of longing um, and um, wrecking, and recognizing that some of those patterns along like related to mental health were kind of that that addiction to like a dopamine addiction where you're kind of like uh 
you get that dopamine when you're anticipating, 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 and it's almost more fun than getting what you want. Um, and so kind of realizing the cycle I was in was helpful in breaking up with that identity. But for, in terms of like switching to sexual empowerment, I wouldn't say it was even really like now that I'm having sex, like I'm all about sexual empowerment. I think I was about sexual empowerment even as a virgin because it was like I was saying, um, you have, you know, you have a choice. I mean, with the whole feminist movement, it was all about, you know, it's it's your choice to do what you want with your body. Um, so I feel like there is sexual, there is empowerment in saying no when you don't feel you're in a safe um, or a comfortable position to have sex. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I and I and I pray for all of you ladies watching and listening that uh, there is great power in saying no. So keep that in mind. So but I want to ask you something, because I just recently, Amanda, interviewed someone that had gone through sexual abuse at a very, very young age. But as they got into their teenage years and pretty much their adult life, they leaned on alcohol and in a way used alcohol to basically break down their own personal barriers so they could engage with anyone or anything at any time. Um, so what are the dangers of using alcohol to uh, disassociate in order to allow your body to do what everyone else is doing? Yeah, you know, I think even though I wasn't having sex, um, I, uh, which people assume, you know, associate with being super conservative and so forth, or, you know, like super prude and didn't go out and so forth. I was going out with a lot of people and I was drinking too. And I think I did use alcohol as a way of, um, uh, my goal wasn't to disassociate, but I think I did get to that point in a couple situations where my my I, I kind of made it a habit um and then eventually my body was was uh got to the point of being like no this is this is not good anymore and it eventually it 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 told me in a couple situations where i just in an intimate situation where i was um just bawling and uh and then i i got into a couple more situations with a couple more men that i was dating this was probably in my late 30s after uh feeling pretty heartbroken about one particular guy and and I warned one, I warned one guy, and I was like, "I'm, I might cry, you know, if we start making out." And he's like, "Oh," he said, "That's kind of," he's like, "That's sexy." And I'm like, "No, it's not actually." Um, but yeah, I feel like alcohol can um, can be a way of escaping listening to your body, um, especially in the case of you know, like the person you, you were talking about with abuse. Um, but a, a lot of people, I think, use it to uh, escape intimacy like really engage like yeah you can throw your clothes off and and get with somebody but you may not really be intimate with them like in terms of like connecting emotionally emotional intimacy is what i'm talking about so now was that so is that how you looked at or you know abstaining from sexual activity did you look at it as wanting that true emotional intimate uh, connection that's what that's what I was reserving sexual intercourse for. Yes, was to experience that with um, a man who I 
knew that I trusted and um, who uh, was, you know, I loved him. He loved me and we were committed to each other. I wasn't necessarily waiting for marriage. You know, I was earlier in my, probably in my teens, early twenties. And then I was like, this may not be realistic at this point, you know, especially when I got into my thirties and like, I don't know, but I just want to find that, that surely that guy's got to be out there. And, and they were out there, but I just kept, you know, chasing guys who didn't want to commit. So. Well, did, did you just, did you ever have times where you're just like, I'm tired of being a virgin. Let me just get it over with. Um, yeah, <laughs> I did. And I think that's when I was, you know, I, I spoke to, um, that's when I was going through working through some things in therapy. So it wasn't just a mat and it's not that easy. Like after you have like waited that long, um, it's kind of like, I felt like, um, you can't just like drop out of a race that you've been in back to the endurance, you know, analogy. Um, I think there's a, there actually, there's a piece of perfectionism in here that I'm still working on actually, um, in terms of, um, you know, not trying to perfect everything. And, uh, that's, that's an ongoing, um, piece for me. Well, let me ask you this because, um, you know, let's talk about the medical community for a moment. You have gynecologists, you have primary caregivers. Uh, what does the medical community actually need to understand about late in life virgins so they don't make them feel abnormal? Yeah, I've talked to several women who um, are still virgins or were, you know, virgins in their late 20s, 30s, and they um, have all shared similar stories where the, um, whether it was a gynecologist or primary care physician, you know, they usually, you know, in your, in your annual exam, they'll say, you know, when's the last time you had sex? And, um, and you know, like me, like the other women I spoke with, we'd be like, well, we haven't. And they'd, then they'd start asking her, have you had a penis there? And, um, and, uh, and then they would, you know, let up or they'd be like, really? When is the last time you had sex? You know, oh, like, so they wouldn't so the, believe you. Exactly. So I think that's the biggest thing is for pe um, people in the medical community to start believing late in life virgins um, and to, yeah, not make them feel like something just by not believing someone automatically feels makes them feel like they're abnormal. Well, not only that, I mean, let's say you have a woman that's 35. She goes to the gynecologist. He asks, when's the last time you had sex? And she goes, never. And his idea is you're probably lying and you don't want to tell me because you're probably embarrassed, but she's actually telling the truth. So I don't even think it's feeling abnormal. I think it's more of almost like, hey, this doctor doesn't believe what I'm saying. And, and so that comes back to me thinking the doctor's not listening. Right. That's a, yeah, exactly. And it makes the person being asked these questions feel like they, um, they perhaps, you know, their definition of virginity isn't good enough or their definition of sex, you know, so it gets into a, it gets into, um, a whole slew of other philosophical questions too. Well, absolutely. Now, how do, 
how do patterns of longing develop and can impact us uh, negatively? Um, well, kind of like I was talking about earlier with, uh, with the dopamine cycle, um, and I'm not a doctor, but I've, you know, as a journalist, I've tried to do a lot of research, spoke to some neuroscientists about this and, um, and even like in our culture with, with our, you know, binge watching addiction, Netflix addiction, uh, um, what's the, uh, you know, online shopping, online dating online real estate shopping like Zillow, um, it's, there's, it, it perpetuates the cycle of like anticipating or longing for something better than what you have. Um, and I think awareness is the key to at least stepping back and, and looking at your patterns, where are you spending your time? Um, where are you hyper-focused and to be, comfortable stepping away perhaps from some of those um, habits that are really drawing you away from the present, um, especially during the pandemic. Like who wanted to be quote unquote present when, you know, crap's happening everywhere. everywhere. So um, there definitely was an uptick in um, more like online dating and online shopping and Zillow, you know, shopping for real estate, the bigger, you know, bigger house, a better place than what you have. Um, but you know, without ever any intent of actually buying it, but you're still shopping, quote unquote. So, well, let me see this. I actually did a a search of, and I and I've seen I've seen the list of the top ten search engines, and five in that top ten are porn sites. How has are we, I mean, has our society become that over sexualized? I mean, I would hope not. That is surprising. Um, but man, that sets up a standard for people. <laughs> so uh, well, that's it, a little it, scary. It, yeah, it tells you it, it tells you that uh, people are searching more than whatever they're looking for on Amazon or or Google, and you know those those lists were the same before the pandemic and still the same during and even after the pandemic. And, and I think for, you know, a lot of the scientific research is showing that, you know, kids as young as eight years old having free oh, wow. access to those sites and that alone is causing a mental disorder that is very difficult to break, and again, that can lead to both boys and girls uh, never having the power to say no, and and really uh, waiting for the right person. Yeah, and really distort expectations for what sex should be and what you know that your partner is going to do or not do. So yeah, that is pretty shocking. Yeah, and now let me ask you this, Amanda: Why do people need to stop blaming? the purity culture and start looking at their own poor habits. Yeah. So I did grow up in the church, um, still go to church. I went through one of the uh, ring ceremonies, um, like a true love waits is what it was called. Um, but it was for me, it was more like an empowerment thing. 
um, like, oh, okay, yeah, I can wait. I'll I'll show you how long I can wait. <laughs> um, but you know, I I feel like I've looked around at a lot of other women who um, went through some of those ceremonies and um, came out of quote unquote a purity culture, um, and. Uh, I feel like, yeah, there is something to be said for the purity culture having maybe given women um, a distorted view of their, their, um, how would I say, like their, their choice and what they, what they do and, and how they feel about their body and having sexual experiences. But I think it's been it's become like a scapegoat, like that, that women who came out of that era and came out of the churches that are like, Oh, the church screwed me up. Um, because now I'm, you know, cause of all my promiscuous activity or because I, you know, it took me so long to figure, figure out, um, when and who I could have sex with. Um, I think there are a lot of, you know, that's a seed. The church plants a seed perhaps that may or may not be helpful, but I think that, um, there are a lot of other seeds that are planted along the way and you have to unravel all of those things. And that's something I had to do, not just like blame the church eventually when I'm like, why am I still a virgin in my thirties? Is something wrong with me? Is it all because the church screwed me up and look at my, look at culture also, and just look at my own patterns, um, and reassess those as one, you know, one big, one big wad of, uh, you know, a spider web, I, I suppose you might look at, like pull those strands apart. Well, what were some of the things that you were hearing from other people who uh, were late in life virgins? I mean, what were the things that they were telling themselves? Like, why am I still this way? I mean, what were some of the things that they were blaming? Um, well, let's say some of them are still, you know, some of them that I talked to are still very confident in their choice. Like they're like, no, this is what I'm waiting for. And thank you for putting a voice to, um, the empowerment of waiting for, you know, of what, for what you want. Um, but there were some that I think, uh, mm, well, like you brought up earlier, like blamed some bad situations in the past. I don't know if it would necessarily be sexual abuse, but like, um, you know, perhaps having had some experiences with men, uh, that, and I'm talking, I'm speaking from a heterosexual, you know, right. point of view here, sure. um, that, that made them feel badly about themselves. Um, so what it, now have you, uh, have you had any discussions with, uh, some of them, uh, based on maybe, what their parents uh, think about them, not as teenagers or college, but if they're in their, let's say in their thirties and maybe 40 and they're still a virgin, what are their parents saying? Good for you. Or will you just go out and have sex? I mean, you know, what are they telling their child? That's a, yeah, I can only, I haven't heard. That's a great question. I should ask some of them more specifically about that. I have said, you know, most of them, I don't think their parents are, there, I think one of them said, um, a woman I spoke to in Ireland was like, well, my dad might, might figure, might, might think that that's the case, but he just doesn't really want to know. Um, so I think maybe at that point, I don't know how many parents really are aware of it, 
my parents were always like supportive of like, this is your choice. Okay. Um, and I would talk, I would talk to my mom about more than she really wanted to know. <laughs> Definitely TMI. Um, but you know, once you've told her, once you kind of like a, um, confessional sort of situation, I'm not Catholic, but, uh, it was almost like once you keep telling her, you just keep telling her stuff. So I, uh, I did get to a point where, you know, and I was talking to her about all these, like all the things running around in my head. And she said, she did say, Amanda, when you have sex, I don't really want to know. I was like, okay. And that actually was a little liberating in some ways to be like, yeah, this is not, um, this is still not about, um, getting straight A's anymore, you know, that back to the perfectionism thing. Yeah. You know, kids are not normally kids are not going to talk to their parents if they have it. The parents would rather, you know, let time evolve. And when it happens, it happens. And as long as nobody gets hurt, then they're at peace about that. And, you know, and with parents, they just want what's best for their child, their child not to go through any hurt or trauma or be scarred for life. As long as everything is happy, everything's good. And that the parents' life is not disrupted. Let's really be honest here. Uh, yeah, everything's fine. And so I, I understand that that point of view. Now, uh, how close are we going to see this book when longing becomes your lover? Um, hopefully in the next, I don't know, year or two. So I'm still I'm still waiting for a. Uh, a publisher to gobble me up. So, um, fingers crossed. Well, I think it would be, well, I know it will be a fantastic read, Amanda. I think it's a subject that needs to be, um, shouted a little bit louder, uh, in this day and age. Um, I, for one, believe in the power of no on multiple levels. I think there is a safety net with the power of no before we say yes to anything gives us time to think time for many of you out there time to mature before you make a decision that you know uh, is very very important and i think in this case uh when it comes to having sex for the first time that that should be a very important decision now amanda where can all of my viewers and listeners know more about you is there a particular website that they can go visit uh, thanks for asking. Yeah, my website is um, I'm com or um, on Instagram at, uh, at Amanda J. McCracken. All right, ladies and gentlemen, AmandaJMcCracken.com. If you want to know more about this incredible subject, and ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls from teenage to college, Look, you have the power. If you want to wait until you find that right person, there's no harm in waiting. And you're probably going to do yourself a whole lot of good by waiting, saying no, but then saying yes at the right time. So remember that. It's, all it's time for all of us to, well, in a way, grow up, mature a little bit before we make major decisions in life. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Amanda McCracken. And again, go to AmandaJMcCracken.com to learn more about her. And I can't wait for that brand new book. Stick around. I will be right back with more. <laughs> 